Good morning. Good morning, Pastor. I'm going to ask you to maybe do a little bit of scrunch if you can't, the crossroads crunch. How about that? If you're on the outside, if there's some gaps in the middle, uh, maybe you might scoot over uh, in just hospitality, right? For others that might come in. And so um, let's be conscious of that. It was quite a few years ago now. Um, I was dead asleep. I mean, dead asleep. I'm a, I'm a, I, God has blessed me with the ability to sleep anywhere, anytime, through any sermon, through, no, um, in any circumstance. So, and my wife hates it. But I had fallen asleep. She was doing something, getting ready, and I was dead asleep. And she woke me up, not real graciously, I'll just say it that way, but she woke me up. And as soon as I woke up, I smell, I, I realized why she woke me up, and I smelled smoke. Anybody ever had that where you smell smoke in your house or maybe it's outside? You just, and that sense of like, oh my goodness, I, I got to do something. And so I look up and there's some smoke coming out of the little heating vent or air conditioning vent. So I, started, I jumped up and I started running through the house looking for fire. Are right, you guys with me? Come on. I'm looking for fire. Wouldn't you would have as well, right? I'm running through the house, I'm, trying to, I'm going through the house trying to find the source of what's, and as I'm making my way through the house, the smoke alarms all start going off. So now my heart starts beating really hard, I'm racing, there's a fire somewhere in my house, and we have children in all the rooms, young people, and I'm running through the house, and I come to my daughter's door, and I open the door, and as soon as I open the door, it opened this way, there is, half of the room is filled with smoke, swirling thick smoke. And I look to the right because I see something, and there's flames going up the side of the, the, the corner of the room and coming over the, the ceiling. So there's smoke, there's fire, there's this obnoxious sound, fire alarm blaring in my ears, and my heart is racing, and I look, and there is my, I don't know, maybe 11, 12-year-old daughter dead asleep. Just happy as can be as a lark, dead asleep, completely oblivious, to her circumstances, completely oblivious to the impending danger that in probably a very few minutes, if something doesn't intervene, dun, 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 then she's not going to be with us anymore. That is the condition of the church in Sardis. And as, as Ron referenced, we're in, we're in a series called Listen Up Church in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, ter- open it up to Revelation chapter 3. And it'll be on the screen behind me, but if you've got a Bible or if you've got, got your phone, I encourage you to engage your Bible, your phone, so that you have it as we move through our text this morning. We're looking at seven letters to seven churches. Listen up, church. God has something to say to us. And this is what he wants to say, not once, it's more urgent than that, to the church, to the group of believers in a city called Sardis in that first century. And their situation was like my daughter. They just didn't realize it. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. He tells John, the apostle John, this is the message I have. Jesus is dictating to John. He says, here's what I want you to write to the angel of the church in Sardis, the messenger of the church in Sardis. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, and then he's going to dictate the message. But before we hear the message, let me remind you that each of these letters has a piece of the description of who? Jesus in chapter 1. That's how Revelation begins. And I, and I hope that we, every time we, we read Revelation or we 
do a study of Revelation, which we have a study coming up this summer of the book of Revelation. Anytime we engage Revelation, always start at the beginning and recognize that this book is ultimately about Jesus Christ. We think of it in terms of, of events, right? Because that affects us. But ultimately, it's about Jesus Christ. And so the book begins with Jesus telling John, here's, who's, here's who engage, is engaging you. Here's who's giving you this vision. Here's the one who is writing the message that you're about to record. It's Jesus Christ. And each of these letters has a little piece of it. Did you catch it there? The one who has the seven spirits of God and the one who has the seven stars says this. And he's going to... He's going to tell us in just a second. But I have to pause because I would be remiss if I didn't remind us that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Now we have leaders, right? We have, we have elders, we have deacons, we have other uh, leaders within this body of, of believers. But we have, we have these group of, of men called elders, pastors. Some of them are vocational. Vocational means that I get paid to do this. I would do this for free, but I get paid to do this. There's a couple of us that get paid to do this because of the faithful giving of the people of this church. Others do it as volunteers. Ron, who prayed this morning, is one of our elders. There's, there's, there's not seven. There's nine. Thank you. We need to get rid of two, so we have the, <laughs> so we have the number of perfection. What'd you say? Yeah, nine is yeah. And they're the, they're the under-shepherds of, the, of, the, of this local church, and we answer to the head of the church. There's only one good shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. It's a privilege to be an under-shepherd. It's a great responsibility, but it's his church. And that's, I think, his intent in, to Sardis, is that, and, he, and he intentionally picks which part of the description for each of these churches. With Sardis, he says, let me remind you, I'm the one that stands, he's the one that stands in the seven amongst the seven candlesticks which represent the churches of that day, these seven, and I hold you. He's the head of the church. Anything else that we hear this morning, anything else that we take from this needs to be rooted back in that truth. Not based on me, what I say or how I say it. You with me? You don't need to hear my voice. You need to hear God's voice. Yeah. So he says, write to this church, and here's what I want you to say. I know your works, and you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now, his message to this church is pretty brief. It's pretty to the point. Now, I, I know what's going on, and I know about your, how you're living, and that you have a reputation. And the word reputation means name only. Isn't that what a reputation is? Now, you can have a good reputation or a bad reputation, but the reputation may not be the truth. No? You guys awake this morning? Yeah. Okay, I want to make sure you're awake. I need to hear you. Huh? He says, I know your reputation. Your reputation is that you're a church. You're a group of, of Christians that come together, and they're in that town, how whatever it looked like for them to be gathering, you have a reputation of being Christians. You're representing Jesus. That's your reputation. But he says the truth is, you're dead. And the words that God gives John that he ends up choosing in, in the Greek, his language, that, to record this, is he says, you have a reputation for being alive, which just literally means you have breath, you're breathing. Right? I mean, that, that, that is a measurement of life, right? 
particularly at the end of life, if we're on hospice or if we're in that season and, and life is ending, we'll, go, well, are they breathing? Check for breath. Check for breathing. Because that's an indication that there's life. He says, you have a reputation for having breath. But the reality is you're dead. And this word dead means no breath. It would be the, 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 the paramedic on the scene and check for pulse, check. For, and it, no, there's no breath. There's no pulse. There's no life. So we're going to say that they are dead. They're deceased. They're no longer with us. This, this is the picture that he, he uses, he paints. I know your works, I know how you're living, and I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Can I label this the diagnosis? Okay? The doctor, the good shepherd, the, the, the great physician has looked at this church and he has says, my diagnosis, have you been to the doctor lately? It's, it's so different, it's so quick. It's so like, what, what, you know, and, and anybody, anybody else besides me want to know why the new blood pressure machines hurt so much more than the old manual ones? Anyone? Is it just me? They hurt, right? It's like, ah. Oh. And you go to the doctor and you have that experience and you, then you wait for the doctor to give you the diagnosis. Here's what's ailing you. Here's what's wrong. We'll get to the other part, but we first need to know what's wrong. And the diagnosis that Jesus gives this church is that you're dead. You're dead. Makes me wonder what happened. Do churches die today? They do. Yeah, they, they literally physically die when they no longer have a physical presence. But can churches die long before there's no physical representation? Can a church exist and be going through the motions and you got a Sunday morning service and we got a sound system and we got chairs and we got buildings and we got programs and we could a church have all that stuff and yet be dead according to Jesus yeah absolutely that's his diagnosis so what happens why does a church die what happened to this church why were they on life support and was it too late for them to recover that's where my mind went this week as I meditated on the diagnosis that Jesus gives this church and I tried to think about today and me and us and what it looks like to be a church in 2023. I wonder where we're at. Where do we fit into this? But where my mind really went was if, in fact, we're just going through the motions and a church is, by his standard, is dead, can you recover? When the doctor says, here's the diagnosis, you have this, isn't that where our mind goes? Is there a treatment? Is there a way to recover? Is there something that can make me better? Could this church come back from the dead? Was it too late for them to recover? My mind went to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and if you have your Bible, or I believe it might be behind me as well, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is writing to a, a, a pastor of a church, the church of Ephesus, and he says, Know this, Timothy, Pastor Timothy, know this, difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self. Just let me pause. Let's see if we can identify. I know we can identify people in our world, in our experiences, but let's not be so quick to look outward. Let's look. Let's see if we identify ourselves at all in these words. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, 
without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, the reputation of going through the motions of godliness, but denying its power. There's no life. There's no breath. There's things on the outside that look like, yeah, that, that church, that person, those people. You find yourself anywhere in there or struggling with any of these things or given over to any of these things? Why do churches die? And what does it take for a church that's dead to wake up and become a living, vibrant church? Let's talk about the prescription. Because if the diagnosis is that we're dead, we have a reputation, but we're actually dead, we're just going through the motions, is there a prescription? Jesus, what can we do? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 and 3 is the, is the prescription. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. You haven't fulfilled them. You haven't done what you should be doing. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Because if you're not alert, going back to that word he, he starts in verse 2, if you're not, if you don't choose to act on this prescription, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come against you. There's a prescription here. Can I unpack it with you for a few minutes? And then if you're going to write anything down or if you're going to take notes of any kind this morning, this is where you want to get some things. Hear, hear from him. He says, be alert. Let me say it this way. Pay attention to what's going on in your setting. Pay attention. I had a conversation with a couple of people this morning, unknowing what this was about, about health and changes that need to take place. Becoming aware, alert, of what is happening. Okay, more of you should have laughed, but okay. Be alert, he says. Pay attention. Wake up to the circumstances in which you find yourself. Here, here's, here's a version of us not being truly alert. We're, we're caught up, we're worried about the economy or the government or education or even our health. Or if one more newscaster says an unprecedented storm, it's rain. It's what we're, we, we've, been, we've been praying for this for three years. So how about a little party and celebrate? I know sometimes there's more than we want. But we get caught up in all those kinds of things that are happening and we're not alert to the fact that Jesus says there is a spiritual battle going on for the souls of mankind and I have put my church, left my church on this earth so that salt and light might be present, so that the light might be seen, the truth could be known. Go and make disciples. But remember, I'm with you until the end. Why would you say that, Jesus? Because it's going to be a long, tough, hard journey. And you think I had problems when I walked this earth? You're going to have them too. But it's not about you. So if I can speak to those who claim the name of Christ for just specifically for a second, is but a bad word? Parents is but a bad word? I see some parents. I'm getting a, okay, well, I didn't do this for a second. We gotta stop being butthurt as Christians about how we what this world is doing to us. 
We're so offended, we're so upset, we're so frustrated with the difficulty of living out our faith that we're not alert to what's happening. There's a reason why this is happening. Jesus said this would happen. I think it's in part why the church of Sardis is dead because they, they're not alert. They don't want to be alert. They don't want to fight the good fight, keep the faith, run the race. I, I know I'm in the majority when I say it hurts to run. Now, there's a few of you that would say it's awesome, and, but for me, it hurts. And when I've decided, I haven't decided really to run on purpose except somebody's chasing me since junior high because I, I ran cross country in, in eighth grade and I thought this is amazing for about two months and then I wanted to quit and my parent, my dad never let me quit anything that I committed to so I had to finish it and I, I've never run 20 something miles again in my life. I can't imagine, it's hard, it hurts, it takes devotion and dedication and training and that's the race that we're called to run. And he says, the prescription is you got to wake up. Somehow along the way, you, you have misunderstood, you've ignored what this life of following Jesus in a broken world really is all about. And you want it easy. You want to be comfortable. I want that big red button. You know, I have it in my office. You know, the red button? That was easy. You know, that's what I want my Christian life to be, my service for Jesus, my discipleship. I want it, church, it's not going to be easy. It's never been easy. And shame on us for falling asleep and thinking that, you know, we should have our cake and eat it too, right? We should be followers of Jesus and the whole world be excited that we're followers of Jesus. Satan is not excited when a group of people come together and say, we're going to follow Jesus together, we're going to make disciples, he's not excited at all. And he's going to ramp up his efforts to stand against those who would follow Jesus. He says the first thing you've got to do is you've got to pay attention to what's going on. You've got to wake up. You've got to get back, put your guard back on. Be alert. Peter said this in chapter 5 of his first letter. Be serious. Okay, just be serious. This is important. And then he uses the same word. He says, be alert. Peter, what do we need to be alert to? Well, you have an adversary, and that adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Do you realize that's the end game? We got Satan over here going, okay, let me see who I can get. Let me see who I can. I want to oh, get you off by your side, by yourself, because I'm, I'm not, this is not true of this gentleman, okay, but, um, you know, I want to get you, and, oh, I want to get you, and I want to, and he's doing everything he can to devour us, and over here, the Holy Spirit is saying, oh, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, and my part in this warfare is that I'm with you, I'll always be with you, I'll give you everything you need, come on, we can do this, we can make disciples, we can be true to our Savior and our King Jesus Christ, we can do it, and I'm with you. That's the end game, so that ultimately, who gets the glory? God. Wake up. Pay attention. You have an adversary. Let me suggest, I'm going to read into these, this prescription some suggestions. And here's the first one. Complacency. Am I echoing? I feel like I'm echoing a little bit, guys. Complacency can kill a church. Complacency can kill a church. Comfort, wanting it easy, can kill a church. 
he goes on. He doesn't just say be prepared. Another part of the prescription is strengthen what remains. By the way, side note, this city of Sardis, I looked this up because I'm just a geek. The city, of, the city of Sardis was impenetrable. The way it was built on a hill and its, and its defenses, it was conquered twice, once in 549, once in 214, both B.C., both times the city was conquered, the enemies marked, they scaled up the walls and came right in and conquered the city. Both times, 300 years apart, nobody was on the wall paying attention. The city otherwise had never been defeated until it was, it was abandoned. Nobody was paying attention, nobody was alert. There's a lesson for us. Strengthen. Strengthen what remains. Serve one another with love. If the first part of the prescription is pay attention to what's going on in your day and your moment, the second part that the doctor is telling us, here's what you need to do. You need to serve one another with love. This word strengthen what remains, this phrase. I spent a lot of time here because there's not a lot of uh, agreement of what exactly. It seems a little bit ambiguous. So what I did is I began to study how that word strengthen is used. And I discovered that it's always used directed at people. It says what here, or at least in English it says what. What are you telling, what's, what am I to bolster? What am I to build up? What am I to strengthen? Well, listen to what we have in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, God the Father will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Paul, why did you send Timothy to Thessalonica? To strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith. We're going to see in a minute that not everybody was dead. This part of the prescription seems to be indicating you need to start serving one another. You need to serve one another in love. Isn't that what Jesus I was going to say hint, it's stronger than hint. Didn't Jesus say, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples, you're my church, if you love one another. You want a church to move from being, if we want to, if, if, there's, if we're in this category or any church that wants to go from being dead to alive, don't just pay attention to what's going on in the spiritual battle that's happening, but then turn inward and serve one another with love. Strengthen one another with love. Strengthen what remains. Individualism can kill a church. You, you with me? Yes. Aren't we, isn't that part of our DNA as Americans? Bootstraps, pulling up, working hard. Nothing wrong with any of that, right? Good work ethic. But nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to do it for yourself. You've got to grab what you can grab. You've got to look out for you. When I was a teenager in the 70s, we said, whatever feels good, do it. We have a mantra just about every generation that reflects this idea. is Nobody knows what's good for you like you do. You know what's best for you. And God comes along and says, but my church is about an organism of people. It's a body of parts caring for one another. And the reason you're dead, Sardis, is that you only care individually, you care about yourselves. You don't see yourself as a part of a big family, a body. And that the body parts have a responsibility. You, you with me? 
We could spend a lot of time here. I think we get it. Serve one another with love because individualism, just looking out for you, just looking out for me is going to kill a church. And here's the third part of the prescription. Be transformed by right thinking. Remember what you have received and heard. What did they have received and heard? They had received and heard what we have received and heard. By this point, at the end of the, the, the first century, they had access to most of what we have as the New Testament. They had heard the apostles' teaching in Acts chapter 2. Remember what you've received and heard. Remember the gospel. Remember the truth of not only who Jesus is and what he's done for us, but why, we, why are we here? Who are we and why are we here? Do you ever lose track? Do you ever stop thinking about that? I do. Can I just be, I'll, I'll be the guinea pig or whatever the word is. There's times when I'm just going through the motions and I, I what, are, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we putting all this energy and effort into, why do we care that the temperature is right? Why do we care there's enough chairs? Why do we keep asking people, man, we want people to minister to our children, to our youth, and disciple our kids, and disciple our young people, and invest in, why do we keep, and, and, and all the, you know, paying the bills, and mowing the lawn, and trimming, all, there's so, you with me? It's just like, why are we doing this? Why am I up here? He says, you need to remember what you've received and heard. You need to be transformed by right thinking. Because when I get to those places, I got there because of wrong thinking. It all starts here. It all starts here. I love Romans chapter 12, and I know many of you know it, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this age. Don't, don't be like the water that you're in, the frog in the kettle. Don't be conformed to what you see around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What you and I allow to take hold and take root and up here in the thinking. Confusion can kill a church. Confusion can kill a church. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Who are we to God? Why has he left us here? What are we supposed to be doing be transformed by right thinking. Remember what you have received and heard. And then the prescription goes on. He says this. Say yes to the will of God. Say yes to the will of God. Did you see it there in his words? What does he say? He says live it. Remember what you've heard and seen. Get it back into your head. What you put into your head matters and what you're thinking. Why are we here? Who am I? What's church about? What's the body of Christ about? Okay, I'm going to think this way. Now what do I do? You say yes to it. So as God gives you clarity and you're not being conformed, but you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, I didn't read the last part of the verse, did I? So that you can discern what is good, pleasing, the perfect will of God. You will know what to do, how to live. And then the prescription says, do it. Say yes to the will of God. Did you have any conflict this week? And I'm raising my hand because I did. Conflict this week with the will of God in your own will? I did. More than once. And I do that little argument, that little dance with God, you know, based on personality and experience. We all have a version of it, right? Where we, well, you know, and, and it, the pages are, of Scripture are filled with people doing this, right? Did God really say, did you? Re and there's a battle between my will and his will. And he says the prescription for a church to come back from the dead, to be alive again, is say yes to the will of God. If God speaks to you this morning in some way, 
and, and you've heard me say this, I, don't, I really, and I mean this lovingly, I don't want you to come up and go, oh, that was a great message. All you're doing is now you're creating a battle of pride for me. I don't need to hear that. But if God speaks to you and you're going to say yes, then yes, come up to the speaker and say, God told me to do this and I'm going to do it. Because that's the prescription for life. Is when God says, hey, you know this area of your life? And, and I know you maybe don't think that I know about it, but I do, and your struggle and your choices here, I want this to change. And then we respond with the word, yes, yes. Live it. Not just here on Sunday morning, it's throughout the course of our day and our week. It's our relationship with Jesus. Say yes to the will of God. Start doing what you know to be God's will. As you're transformed by right thinking, he will speak, he will give us clarity, discernment on his will, and then he says do it. Because here's the, here's the, the, the negative, compromise can kill a church. Compromise can kill a church. And that's what I'm arguing for when God says here's my will and I say well here's my will. I very seldom go, your will stinks, I'm going to do my own thing. I usually go somewhere in the middle. <laughs> you, know, I get, you know, here's the line, God says don't cross that line, and, excuse, sorry Nate, and, there's this, and God's will is on this side, and my will's over there. I very often am like, what do you think, God? <laughs> Compromise. Compromise, yeah. And it's going to kill a church. Can I? This is not in my notes, and this just came into my mind. Maybe somebody here needs to hear it this morning. My sin, my compromise, never just affects me. It affects my church family. And that's true of every one of you as well. If this is your family, you're part of this family, you're part of the body of Christ, your compromise, my compromise, never says, stays self-contained in our own lives. It affects the body of Christ. And if you have enough compromise in a church, it dies. Compromise can kill a church. Finally, the last part of the prescription, humble yourselves before God. What's the word in your text? Somebody look at, and what's the, what's the last word? After keep it, he says, and... Don't look at me, look at, it's not written here. Repent, thank you, repent. Boy, we've seen this word more than once in these messages to the churches. This, this must be something really important to Jesus, would you agree? Yeah, it is. It, it literally, it, this word, it, it ha, it's the roots of it is just change your mind, change your mind. See, all these years that I thought my wife's, you know, prerogative was a bad thing, it's a good thing. Let it sink in, you'll get it eventually. <laughs> My wife has just been repenting all these years, you know. There you go. I knew you'd get there. It literally means to change your mind, to, sit, to stop and go, hold on. This is how I was living. This is where I was going. This is what I was going to say. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to live this way. Humble yourselves before God. The, the reason I use humble is because we don't repent until we humble ourselves before God until we acknowledge that he is God and I'm not. His will is good. My will is probably not, 99.9% .9 of the time, unless it aligns with his. And so there needs to be a humbling to repent. Does there not? Husbands, wives, they get a pass. But guys, when we, right? I don't need emails, please. I, I, get, I get the error of my ways, so you don't need to correct me. 
All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, if I can add my translation, duh, humble yourselves. If that's the case, if this is what you're saying, my relationship, a relationship with God looks like, he resists the proud, he fights against them, he gives grace to the humble. I want grace. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. It means casting all your care upon him. All your objections, all your justifications, all your reasons for not humbling. Do you see the connection? The reason Peter puts that there, you cast all your, yeah, but if I humble myself, you don't understand what's going to happen. Cast all your care upon him. Yeah, but no, but if I humble myself before my wife, oh, she's, or my kids, or my whoever it might be, you don't understand, my boss, you don't, my, 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 my another person in the body of Christ, you don't understand what they're going to do. With, cast all your care upon him and humble yourselves under his mighty hand. He's got you. This is the last part of the prescription. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves before God. Now, what about the prognosis? So we got a, we got a, what, what's the first thing? Diagnosis. Sorry, blank. And, and then the doctor, the good shepherd, the great physician says, here's the, here's the prescription. Here's what you need to do. Okay? What's the next question we have for the doctor, or at least for me? It's, then what happens? Yeah, it, it, is it, how long, how much, give me a timeline. How long do I have to do this? What's the outcome? Well, he gives us the prognosis, which is what a prognosis is, the potential outcome of following the prescription, not following the prescription. He says, verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis. There's some people in the church who have not defiled their clothes. It's a picture that speaks of going back to something. They will walk with me in white. See, when we find forgiveness and mercy and regeneration and new life in Jesus, we're forgiven. And that's what white clothes represent. Through the book of Revelation, white clothes represent the forgiven, those who've been forgiven of their sins. And so I got these new white clothes, and these people in the church with white clothes are going back to the old sin, and they're staining their clothes, and they're getting sin all over their clothes and he says there's some that haven't done that they haven't defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy in the same way the victor will be dressed in white clothes and he's speaking of the future the victor will be dressed in white clothes again signifying forgiveness and i will never erase his her name their name from the book of life but acknowledge their name his name before my father and before his angels and he finishes every letter the same way. Anyone who has ears should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Which is why you don't need to hear my voice this morning. You need to hear the Spirit of God speaking to you. Because he is still speaking. The prognosis is good. The prognosis is good. Forgiven, dressed in white. Secure, name in the book of life. And by the way, the wording of this phrase in the English, sometimes we read it and we go, well, man, it almost sounds like the, my name could be removed from the book of life well based on all the other times particularly apostle john talks about this a lot in his gospel he's not saying your name can be he's just affirming that your name never will be i'm just telling you it's never going to come out of that book because of who he is you're secure and then my favorite part is we're chosen 
There's this, I, don't, I, I so look forward to this picture, this moment. I don't, we just have a little bit of details, but there is a, a promise that one day in the presence of all of heaven, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, all created beings, all the, the cherubim, the angels, everyone, that Jesus is going to call out my name. And he's going to say, Kurt's one of mine. Now maybe he'll new, use the new name that we saw last week or the week before. But the prognosis is, you follow this prescription. You allow God to bring life back into the, into the body of Christ, into individual body parts of the body of Christ. The prognosis is forgiveness, security, and that you're his. We're chosen by him. That's a pretty good prognosis. Come on now. I would love for my doctor to give me that kind of good news. Let me close with the questions, a couple of questions. And if you have the paper notes, they're on the bottom. And if you don't, let me give them to you. First of all, I want us to consider this. What are the vital signs of spiritual health? Take a look at your own life. See if you can identify what those are. It's not going through the motions. We learned that already, right? So don't put, well, showing up at church every week. That can be a part of, are you with me? What do you know? Do you know what the vital signs of life, spiritual life, look like? Every time I'm in, the, I'm in the in the hospital for whatever reason, you can ask Becky. I'll say, well, okay, what is that one? You know these machines and all the different. There's like I don't know why there's like six or seven lines right on those machines. And I'm like, what does that one mean? What is that? One? Oh, what 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 are they, what are they reading? What are the vital signs of spiritual life? Do you know what they are? Let's see if we can start there. What they are? Question number two is how are your vital signs? You identify what they are. Maybe you already know. Put that, put that machine on. Ah, you know what I'm talking about? What's your, what's your spiritual blood pressure? What's your spiritual heartbeat? What's your spiritual cholesterol levels? How are your spiritual vital signs? I encourage you to have this conversation with the Spirit of God. And number three, and I'm going to invite our worship team as I address this last question, what change could you make that would bring an immediate benefit to your spiritual life? Steve, can I, Steve shared with me this morning about donuts. He's, he's not doing donuts. Not going to do donuts for a while. Why? You know why, right? So what change could you and I make that would have immediate benefit to my spiritual life as you look through the prescription as you go back through it pick one pick one and say i'm going to start right there if i do this if i stop doing that if i allow god blank that's going to have immediate impact on my spiritual life and here here's the bottom line our spiritual lives every one of us every single one of us our spiritual lives matter to the health of this body Every single one of us. You say, well, I'm here and I, I'm not, I don't believe in God. I'm just kind of getting to know. You matter. You matter. And we want to take a journey together, all of us, wherever we're at, encouraging one another, challenging one another, holding each other accountable to grow spiritually so that he would never send a letter to Crossroads and say, I know your reputation, but you're dead. Are we together? Let's examine our own lives and let's start there. What change 
could I make that would bring an immediate benefit to my spiritual life that would have an impact on this body so that we can be full of life? You want to be full of life? I want to be full of life. Jesus wants us to be full of life. So let's respond.